Before we start today's show, I just want to give a massive shout out to Acast for making this show happen. Thanks, Acast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi and welcome back to the PJ Podcast. I'm your host PJ. I hope you're having a wonderful week. I have had a lot of self-doubt again this week, a lot of insecurities, a lot of anxiety coming up. And look, if we're going to get woo-woo, we are going into eclipse season and things are getting intense, all right? So apparently lots of stuff is coming to the surface at the moment. If you're feeling that, I just wanted you to know you're not alone. My guest on the show this week is incredibly inspirational. She's a multi-New York Times and Amazon best-selling author, podcaster, international keynote speaker, philanthropist, and climate advisor, Sarah Wilson. She is known globally for founding the I Quit Sugar Movement. No doubt you've heard it. A digital wellness program and 13 award-winning books that have sold in 52 countries, which saw millions around the world transform their health. And last year, she sold the business and gave everything to charity, which is incredibly admirable. She's been... (laughs) Admirable. I don't know why I said that weird. Uh, She's been the editor of Cosmo at age 29, host of MasterChef, a journalist, a columnist, and even previous guest of the show, Mark Manson, who wrote um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, said her book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, is the best book on living with anxiety that he's ever read. Um, Sarah has seen incredible success in her life and in many cases she's had to wing her way through situations with a lot of bravery and courage. We talk about the complexity of mental health in this episode and how we can actually use our struggles as our superpowers and her why. It's never been for financial gain, um, so what is it? Plus her minimalist approach to life, which is one I deeply admire. I hope you enjoy my chat with Sarah. Sarah, it's an honour to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining me. I love being here. Thank you for having me. So I've learned a lot about you building up to having you on the show. Um, You have a very, very colourful history. And it started out when you were like 18 and you were overseas, living on the streets of Paris, fending for yourself. Let's go there because you left school, you went overseas. How did that happen? Yeah, I was escaping, um, fleeing mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of things. And, yeah, I, I think I've always been somebody who needs a lot of movement. Like, 
as a kid I did and I went overseas before it was a thing like it was a long way away I'd never been on a plane in my life I'd never been in a hotel in my life so it was you know it was huge and this was before the internet it was before mobile phones I had my uncle's backpack and a copy of let's go but it was about six years old because it was my uncle's and it had all the places that he'd been to ripped out so I was like all right well I'll go where he hasn't been because there's pages in the book so it was a very different experience right to traveling today you you can't book anything you just have to rock up and you know because you're broke you end up catching an overnight train you arrive at you know four in the morning you've got to go and find somewhere and yeah it was it was something that I loved but I wound up in Paris um on the streets because I'd been hitchhiking around Greece and Italy, made my way up through Nice, got robbed at Nice, but everything, right? So my backpack, but also all of my money, traveler's checks, passport, everything. All I had was what I was wearing. And so I had, I figured, oh, well, I better get to Paris and uh, because there's an embassy there. And so I caught an overnight train. I figured, well, if I'm going to catch an overnight train, I might as, and I'm going to jump it, right? I might as well go first (laughs) class. So I went straight to the front of the train, found myself a nice little booth with a bed and and went to sleep. And a conductor came in and gave me a fine, but knew that, you know, I had no ID on me. So I gave a false address. And yeah, I found the world a very kind place, actually. A lot of people helped me. You know, the conductor gave me a wink. Like he knew I gave a false address, but he believed that. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. And he was like, here you go. Um, I'm not going to kick you off the train, go back. And I'm not going to tell you go into economy either. You can stay where you are, which was, you know, I was like, wow, the world's looking after There are after good me. people in the world. Mm. It was just a ridiculous situation where I was in Paris where I had no passport. So I went to the embassy and they said, well, that will be 400 francs or whatever it was. And I was like, well, I have no money. And they went, oh, so I went to the ANZ bank office on the other side of Paris, just jumping over to Hernstyles, you know, and just jumping trains. And uh, they'd say, well, you can't get any money without any ID passport. And that went on for two and a half, three weeks until finally someone got sick of seeing me at the embassy and gave me a loan for, for 24 hours so that I could go across to ANZ, um, sorry, so that I could buy the passport, then go across to ANZ, get money out, come back. And in that time, I just stole food from supermarkets, went into parks and people would see me and give me some food. And, um, and then I would um, follow people into a youth hostel and just find a bed for the night. And, you know, there's one particular one right opposite Jardin de Luxembourg. And I, whenever I go to Paris, I've got to go and just see the building, remind me. Um, but they would give some baguette, butter and jam and a coffee every morning with your bunk bed. So, yeah, that was, that was how I lived. And I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It gave me a taste for freedom. And this was at the age of 18. So was this prior to you studying? I'd done one year of university and hated it. So I was studying law (laughs) and I was really miserable and I'd been modeling as well. And I'd won this modeling competition, but the dude who it meant going to Germany with this guy and I was just like, no, I'm not doing it. He gave me the creeps. So I was like, well, I'll go on my own. I'll work out. So I got to London um, and got a modeling contract, but they told me to go and lose a little bit of weight. This is the nineties, right? Like, this is waif. Yeah, yeah. This was early nineties. So I went up to the North of England where I had a friend from primary school and I was going to spend Christmas with her. They said, look, lose a couple of centimeters, you know, and, and get yourself on track. And I was like, yep, cool. So I went up there and just ate chip buddies and drank pints of Guinness <laughs> and put on like a whole and basically sabotaged my modeling career. So no way. Yeah. Which I kind of think I needed to do. <laughs> 
yeah. And so you spent that time in Europe. Then did you go back to Australia? You're like, right, got that out of my system. Let's get back on track. Or was that sort of the beginning of oh, another no, whole I've adventure? N- I've never had a plan. I was <laughs> quite mentally unwell as well. Like I was grappling with um, what turned out to be a bipolar diagnosis. And this was, it was called manic depression back then. So, um, yeah, I had lots of adventurous spirit in me, but also, you know, struggled with a lot of pain. So I came back to Australia and things got worse. And, um yeah, and, and then began, you know, an up and down time for probably another uh, 15 years, really. Well, even longer. But um, certainly uh, once I was diagnosed with manic depression, I was put on to all kinds of medication and, you know, anti-epileptics, and antipsychotics, all kinds of stuff. And, um, and, and dot, 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 I eventually wrote a book about it, you know. Uh, the, whole, the whole grisly story's in there. Yeah, well, I mean, 21, that's, you know, that's pretty young to be going through that. And and I suppose at a time when it was such a taboo subject as well. Totally. Like, how did you even approach that? How did you even know that, you, you know, your symptoms were matching bipolar at that stage? Was it even talked about or did you have like a friend that no, said something no. to you? I mean, it's, it was a very different era, right? Like there was no yeah. understanding of it at all. Um, bear in mind that anxiety only entered the DSM, which is the diagnostic tool used by psychiatrists around the world in 1980, right? Wow. Anxiety. Um, so <laughs> I feel like that's I, been around forever. Yeah, but. well, it's existed as an emotion, but as a mental health issue, no. So I had been living in the state, so I ended up getting a scholarship to study philosophy of the universe, which was kind of a bit of quantum physics, a bit of consciousness theory, um, in the States. And I was over there and it was actually one of my professors who sent out the university health people to come and find me because I hadn't turned up to school for quite some time. And I was in a world of pain. I, I, I didn't sleep longer than one or two hours for probably six months in that period. Like I was, and I went mad and, um, so that's, I was first diagnosed with um, manic depression in the States, in California. And then my ex-boyfriend came and got me and took me home. And and then I was diagnosed by a bunch of doctors in Australia as well. So that's that was at the age of 21. Wow. So that's how it happened. And did you feel like you had good support around you when you did get home? Oh, no. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the thing is with bipolar is that you are very reticent to accept the diagnosis. I think, well, back then, you certainly just didn't want a name like that attached to you. But secondly, also when you're on a high, you don't want to take the medication, right? You don't want this stuff, to, you don't want the kite to come down. So, um, yeah, you end up shopping around different psychiatrists and therapists and treatments and it's a roller coaster for many years and and people find it very hard to understand i had a boyfriend who was wonderful this guy that came and got me and he endured a lot yeah so he i attribute a lot of my original initial recovery to him his name shout out to george yeah shout out george Mm. oh that's that's really special um well, first of all, like, congratulations for getting through that. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would be like, um, not sleeping for more than one to two hours a night. That sounds like hell. Yeah. <laughs> but It's been pretty but, much my life story, but, um, yeah. <laughs> and medication, you have um, a lot to thank for. I've heard you speak about in the past, just the, the absolute 
necessity that medication had at different stages at that time yeah yeah at different stages my theory on medication and, and I wrote this book first we make the beast beautiful which is all about this journey and it reframes anxiety and these you know anxious disorders outside of the medical model outside of that paradigm so more through a philosophical and spiritual lens however I ensured that the main medical bodies in the US, Australia and the UK read the book and gave their tick of approval and said it's safe information, it's responsible information. So it sits alongside the medical model. So the way I see it is um, particularly for young people, when you get a diagnosis through the normal medical system and you get medicated with, you know, pharmaceuticals, um, it enables you to put the trauma, the angst, the time-consuming mess of it all on a shelf for a bit, and you can get on with your life, right? You can sort of start to rebuild your friendships, get back to study or work or whatever it might be, and get yourself to a good spot where you then can go and explore, I suppose, the more long-term modulating techniques, meditation, wellness stuff, philosophy, I call it soul nerding, reading about other people throughout history who've had the same experience. If you want to know the number, there's three fixes to anxiety that I would say are my favourites. Firstly, walking. 42,000 studies that show the benefits of walking for mental health. What about running as opposed to walking? Or do they find walking is more powerful? Walking is way more powerful. Any kind of physical activity will... um, finish off the fight or fight kind of mechanism. So basically when we, if you can imagine a deer, right, being chased by a tiger and it's got the flight or fight thing going on, it's it's doing the flight mechanism because yeah, it can't yeah, fight yeah, a tiger. Yeah. So it's running. What happens is if it escapes the tiger, right, you know, it's got two options. It's either going to be eaten or it's going to be, you know. So yeah. if it escapes, basically the running in itself has shaken off that adrenal surge and so it's able to recalibrate and go back to the rest of its life and not turn into a neurotic. Um, humans, on the other hand, we often don't have that opportunity. There's no sort of resolution, right, to our anxiety. Instead, we get anxious about being anxious and it just goes on and on. That's why physical activity is actually a really great thing if you've got anxiety because it's the equivalent of outrunning the tiger. You shake it off, right? Quote Taylor Swift. Um, (laughs) And so any kind of physical activity is great for that. However, for modulating your life so that you don't have too much anxiety going on, walking is the best one because it tells your brain that there's no threat. The fact that you're walking slowly says we're cool. Running can dial up the adrenaline and tell your body that you're in a risky, anxious state. So, yeah, from that point of view, walking would be better. I never knew that. Yeah, there's a whole range of things with walking, which, you know, I sort of flesh out in my more recent book, uh, This One Wild and Precious Life, because I hike around the world to tell the story of how to find life meaningful amid the Climate crisis, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so I pepper it with all of these studies that have been done with walking. So walking, meditation is the next one. Um, It just works. Like, just do it. It's non-negotiable. Are you a TM meditator? Yeah, I I do the Vedic style, not TM. TM, I think, is related to Vedic, but I don't think it really matters what style you do. You know, I think it was Jack Cornfield who said, choose the one seat. You know, just decide on a style and just do it. Like stop flipping and flopping and thinking it's the the technique that's the problem, you know. Mm. And then the third thing, as I mentioned, is the soul nerding. Basically checking out what other people with the same 
you know, plight experienced, how they philosophized around it, how they found meaning and, and following their life story, you see that shit, I can see that their anxiety led to their brilliance, you know, and that's the, mm. the premise behind the title of the book. First, we make the beast beautiful. When you can actually see that the beast is a beautiful thing, then you can really strive and thrive in your life. So that's what that book's about is it's showing how, you know, anxiety actually fulfills a really important philosophical and spiritual purpose. And once yeah. you get that from reading um, and seeing patterns, you know, then you go game on, let's use it. You know, let's, let's max this situation. What are some really cool examples of people throughout time that you've really taken away from yeah. the story? Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, there's the tragic ones, um, but they're also really brilliant. So Virginia Woolf, she has this wonderful quote and it's sort of a long parable, but she talks about sort of the shadow side of the knife as it falls. And if you choose the shadow side, you know, you're choosing for your life to be perilous, but it'll also be interesting. And she goes, I choose interesting and I'm the same, you know, and once you realize that Diane Fosey, who was a incredible biologist who worked in the 1970s with chimps, she did some studies on these chimps that looked like they had OCD or some kind of hypertensive neurotic. I have OCD, like not just the, the cleanliness one that everyone, you know, I've always been very OCD in the sense that I have to do habits or rituals to protect my family. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of people will say I've got OCD or they refer to something as OCD. OCD is very specifically, yeah. and it, you know, existing 1.2 to 1.4% of the population. It's not like just a generic oh. thing, but it's um, the obsession fuels the um, compulsion, which fuels the obsession and you can't get out of the loop. Um, yes. Some people have compulsions, some people have obsessions and it means that your life is not, you can't live a normal life. It actually mm. impedes on your life very, very substantially. But anyway, back to Diane Fosey. She <laughs> yes. um, identified these chimps that, let's say it's OCD, and they exist in a similar proportion in the population as humans, so about 1.2 to 1.4%. And these chimps sat on the outskirts of the clan, you know, and had no mates, fretted and stayed awake all night. But when she removed them from the clan, the clan died out within three to six months. They can't survive. So essentially you have these small uh, numbers of people in or mammals in a population who exhibit intense sensitivities in this case. And, you know, they're the ones that can hear the tiger approaching at night and send the signal out, can smell the poison in the berries and tells everyone, hey, don't eat this. So the neurosis is essential. <laughs> yeah, it is. Absolutely. It's absolutely yeah. essential to the human experience. So then you look at wartime leaders like they say that 70% of wartime leaders were bipolar. So Winston Churchill being an example. Now he was a shocking peacetime leader, but in a emergency, you want the bipolar person who can think wide and fast and big solutions and is not deterred by normative thinking. Same with scientists. 70% of scientists who've won Nobel prizes have had bipolar. Um, ditto oh. with poets. Yeah, so there's this quirk that exists and I think it's the quirk that 
shakes up human nature to ensure that we can move beyond the status quo. How boring would it be if we didn't have all of that and we were all just perfect and everything was glossy? You wouldn't appreciate the good. Well, yeah, and it's even bigger than that because, like, I always say that everyone was kind of hanging out in caves and then some bipolar guy went, hey, I'm bored of this. I'm going to go over that hill, right? And he comes (laughs) back and he goes and discovered the wheel and goes, hey, guys. Over there, that yeah, scary hill yeah, that none yeah. of you will go and climb over. They've invented this thing called the wheel. Let's get onto it. Like, that's that's kind of how I, I sort of explain it. I love that. Would you say you are fueled by fear in life? Like, you, you do things that scare the shit out of you? Like, is that yeah. how you know you're doing the right thing? Yeah, yeah. I um, I think I've, I sort of talk about this a fair bit and Brene Brown told me this. Um, we had to do a gig together many years ago and we were sitting out the back talking about a bunch of, you know, sort of, I don't know, sharing no stories. No big deal. Just me yeah. and Brene. Yeah, I know. It sounds so wanky, doesn't it? <laughs> no, um, jealous. You know, she said, when I'm uncomfortable, it's my reminder, it's my like signal to say, all right, cool stuff is happening important stuff's happening Mm. and we live in a culture where discomfort is to be eradicated and we all just want nice comfy things we don't want anything to get too heavy and so to that extent absolutely I say bring on discomfort I know when you know like right now I've had virtually no sleep I have literally nine appointments today of like podcasts, interviews, jobs I've got to do requiring riding across town and I am absolutely spent and it's, you know, only partway through the day. But I just go, oh, well, game on. And look, the other thing I say to myself is that excitement and anxiety are actually processed in the same part of the brain and our brain doesn't really know the difference. So we've got the option to go when we're feeling anxious or uncomfortable to go, hey, this is exciting. I'm choosing excitement, so yeah. Does depression, what part of the brain does that sit with? Does it sit with sadness? Is it, would you align those emotions together? Like when you say excitement and nerves, would that be the other end of the spectrum? Well, the, the alignment's more that anxiety is always a projection of what will happen in the future. Yeah. Depression is a lamenting, yeah, or fear of what happened in the past. And so, yeah, I think, look, they're all very loose terms. I would say that, yeah, depression would be, in terms of trying to find a positive, you know, um, trigger, I would imagine it would be aligned with melancholy. And melancholy is certainly a really powerful place to sit in if you want to re- frame something because it's a really great space for going down into deep thinking reflection isn't it exactly exactly all of that Mm. kind of thing yeah um i'll get back onto your path of your story because it's really interesting like knowing your life and your your turns what's the word i'm trying to say your (laughs) twists and turns i don't know yeah that's exactly what i'm after your twists and turns in life like you ended up um, being the editor of cosmopolitan and Mm -hmm. you've never read a cosmo in your life and you're like guys i think like you sure you want me to do this and they wanted you to do the job yeah tell me about that journey there's been a bit of faking it till you make it throughout absolutely say Oh, all of it. I've never applied for a job in my life. Like I've never had to write a CV. So yeah, I was writing for a newspaper in Melbourne and I don't know, I actually was annoying my editor at the time. Like she, she actually point blank said to me, and this is what, this is what work life was like back then. Right. Um, I was, I think probably 25 when she said this to me, she just, she called me into her office and just went, I don't like you. And I was like, ah. 
Uh, okay, so you know, and I tried to, you know, you had to hold your shit together. You weren't allowed to cry. And basically she said, you know, you, you're too ambitious. Um, you know, which is kind of strange, right? Anyway, um, that's by the by. I, I was writing, um, for a magazine within the newspaper. I had a column in the newspaper itself on a Friday and a Sunday. And I was sort of putting my hand up for all kinds of things. The fashion editor would go away and I'd go, oh, I'll do it. And then the you know picture editor would be away and I, I, I'd do it, you know. And anyway, some woman was brought down to, from Sydney to sort of oversee what was happening with the magazine. And um, for whatever reason, she reported back to another company. You yeah, know, there's this person, you should check her out. Anyway, at the age of 29, I became the editor of Cosmo, as you say, having never read the magazine I moved up to Sydney and for the job and yeah I I had never worn high heel shoes I didn't wear makeup you'd had a really humble upbringing hadn't you like rural ACT financially yeah financially humble absolutely um it was I lived on a mum and dad had no money it wasn't romantic it wasn't altruistic it wasn't you know values um driven necessarily it was mostly driven by the fact that mum and dad had no money and so uh and there were eight of us we moved out to the country goats for milk and meat and we caught a bus into Canberra for high school which was sort of an hour and a half each way and uh yeah we had no nothing new everything was secondhand even the house was built from bits of concrete dad found um, we didn't have furniture for, for a lot of my childhood. I mean, we had a bed, but we didn't have, you know, um, floor coverings and curtains. There was none of that. It was like four walls Is and that a roof. shaped your very simplistic way of living now? I think so. I think people can go one way or the other, right? Like if yeah. they have an upbringing <laughs> like that, they can turn into capitalist pigs or they yeah. can go the other way. So my siblings and I, we've stayed in this space and we talk about it. And I think it really has a lot to do with the fact that we've worked out that life's easier this way. Like mm. you go to a mall and that's your weekend gone. You know, we've worked out we'd rather go hiking or surfing or go for a picnic and, and that kind of thing. You know, all of my siblings are the same. They put their money into travel and experiences and walk around in you know really faded clothing like we sometimes there's a, there'll be a family photo and we're literally the same color <laughs> palette I love this sort that. of faded sort of gray greeny color yeah because you've been very successful like over the years obviously with like sugar and you know you'll be selling books and whatnot what has driven you at the end of the day like if it's not money because I mean you literally gave your when you sold I Quit Sugar, all that money went to charity. So obviously yeah. it's not excess money that drives you. What is it that gets you going? Yeah, it's not even the result that gets me going. Like I don't go, I want to achieve this. It's it's hard to say. I, I Excitement, I guess. I get an idea and I just have to do it. Like it's so normal to me. And I then sometimes get people looking at, you know, the ferocity with which I do things and they're like, what is that about? I'm like, I don't know. This is just what I do. This is what, isn't this what everybody does? So yeah, I get very passionate about ideas and I go and I go and I go. I think over the years I've come to, I used to berate myself. Oh my God, Sarah, you take, like first we made the beast beautiful. It took me seven years to write, to research and write. Uh, this one wild and precious life took me three years. The last cookbook I did um, when I was doing the I Quit Sugar stuff, that took me nine months to photograph because I wanted to have zero food waste in the making of the book. 
So it was seasoned. So it had to be photographed as close to a year as I could because everything had to be in season. <laughs> but where do your ideas come from? Because creatives have different ways of channeling their work, right? Like, do you find mm. that it just comes to you in the middle of the night when you're not sleeping? It's not as sudden as that. It'll just be this rolling backwards and forwards, angst, pain. I often say that I can smell the pain in the world like it's I just pick up on it I can I can feel and sense the ache so most of my projects have been fueled by seeing fellow humans in pain and confused and not knowing what to do and then I'm like all right I'm gonna go and solve it I've got to find the answer to this just hang tight I'm just gonna go down a few rabbit holes so Let's go and travel the world a couple of times. Yeah, go and speak to everyone. Almost kill myself, hate myself, go into dark hell holes, not sleep. But over the years, I've realized that's just what I do. That's the formula. And so when I go through real angst and, you know, I write 20,000 words and then go throw it out because it's just, you know, doesn't make any sense. I now know that that's just what I do. That's how I do things. So I wish it was otherwise. But then I don't, I, I think it's the process. It's the wrestle that counts. Yeah. Do you feel like you get really stuck sometimes? And how do oh, yeah. you get out of those moments? I get overwhelmed really, really badly because I take on so much and so many angles and considerations. And I, I look at the economic implications, the sociological implications. I over-research. And so, yeah, and then I'll land in a really overwhelmed place. Then I've got to stop and go and usually go for a hike for a couple of days and come back and start again, you know, with fresh eyes. Yeah. I've got to get this of the bird's eye view of things. Yeah. I, I get really stuck. Do you have like toxic default behaviors that you do sometimes revert to in those situations? Oh God, thousands of them. Um, seeking, <laughs> <Talk> out, <to> <laughs> me. seeking out stimulation, coffee, alcohol, um, sex, you know, sort of, yeah, needing to be sort of almost prodded into action again, that kind of thing, taking risks. And that's all sort of fairly bipolary type behavior, which I keep, you know, in balance, in check, but I allow for the impulse to express itself as it needs to at times. So you need that stimulation. Yes, but then I also need withdrawing. Like I can't be around humans for too long. So mm. I have to disappear. Um, Same. Mm. Yeah, so I love humanity. I find humans really hard. So, yeah, yeah, I like them at a distance. So, yeah, I will often have to, yeah, just take off for a bit and disappear. And, um, yeah, sometimes I realise I've not left my house, you know, apart from just having to go to the supermarket, but my head's down and I just want to avoid everybody. Um, so there's a few bad, and that is a bad habit. It's ideal to find a sweet spot where you don't have to retreat. But you've been working at home for Bef way before it was cool, right? You've been doing way this before you had day. to <laughs> because of a pandemic. Yeah, um, yeah. Fifteen. Oh, how long have I been doing it for? Almost. Yeah, about fifteen years. Do you have any tips on people? Because people are doing it in droves now. Like it's so yeah. much more common. How have you stayed sane in that situation? Well, you've got to have a certain amount of routine. So yeah, and you've got to have boundaries. So they're the two things that I would say. So I have routine in the morning in the sense that I always, I get up, I have a certain, you know, I exercise, even if it's for 10, 15 minutes, and then I meditate, shower, coffee, go. And so I just do that. And I play around with doing emails versus 
important work. There's all kinds of things that I try to do. The second thing is to do boundaries. So I do things like uh, hiking's a really great boundary maker because you can't look on your phone you're often yeah. out of range. So, yes. you know, like it gets me away and I'll do things like leave my phone at home. Yeah. And I try to um, have a weekend, even though I don't, I can have a weekend on a Tuesday and a Wednesday if I wanted to. I try to stick to the weekend just to keep into the, you know, keep with the flow. I'm playing by the, the rules of humanity. I'm not, you know, totally <laughs> yeah. exiting the scene. But then also the third thing I would say is actually appreciating it, like owning it. So yeah, every now and then like, I'm burnt out. I'm exhausted. I'm like, I don't have to work until six o'clock tonight. I'm going to finish at three because literally there's nothing else that I really have to do. And I'm going to go for an ocean swim and go and sit in a cafe and do a crossword puzzle. So you've got to max it as well. Like love it because we can often forget. We can get just as rigid as we would be in an office. No one to blame but ourselves. Yes, that's so true. Doing those things every now and then to remind yourself that you actually have that freedom. Yeah, shake up the snow cone is my thing. Like (laughs) when you start to get a bit rigid and stuck, go, what can I do to be a little bit wild right now? A bit naughty, you know? Um, Just quickly, because I'm going to get into wild your podcast soon, but I Quit Sugar, obviously huge, huge brand that went, you know, global. How have you found that? Because you've probably become the I Quit Sugar girl, right? And then you you went back onto sugar, right? So then how do you, I don't know, has that been an interesting um, image to have to shape? Yeah, well, I probably, I didn't go back onto sugar and I probably eat the same amount of sugar now as I did when I was running I Quit Sugar, which was, I was always open about, like, you do the eight week thing to recalibrate your system so that you can work out how much sugar you want to eat comfortably and choose to eat as opposed to be addicted to. So I would, you know, I still eat dark chocolate every day. And if there's birthday cake, like, you know, I, I sort of, I had to be um, interstate for a few jobs and there was bits of food and dessert came out at a dinner I was at and I overate on it and, you know, I pay the price. I feel like hell for the next two or three days. I feel really kind of gross, especially the older I get. So I then just, you know, make sure I veer off that and eat well and just try to get recalibrated again. So it's exactly the same. So I quit, I quit sugar but I didn't, the double negative didn't result in me gorging on sugar, if that makes sense. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, because yeah, I was yeah. wondering if that would put immense pressure on you. It's like, cool, I've like made this name and I've brought a lot of awareness to all these great things. And then it's like, you have to be really rigid. Well, but it sounds like... I believe in what I, you know, the, in the yeah. science and the information I put out there. Like I, I, I couldn't have lived with myself um, otherwise. <laughs> yeah. 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 So no, no, I still live by it. Awesome. Um, now you are obviously doing your podcast, Wild, with Sarah Wilson. Um, mm-hmm. What got you into that? I mean, the premise for it, and, you know, it'd be the same with you. I get all these people approaching me like, oh, PR, you know, so-and-so should be on your podcast. I'm like, oh, cool, what's their wild idea? And they're like, no, 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 they're just really cool people. I'm like, yeah, but that's not, that. they're great for all the other podcasts, you know. So my premise is I explore a wild idea you know, proffered by either a philosopher, a thinker, a creative, whoever it is, that contributes to life, contributes to our experience on this wild and precious planet, you know, and essentially also helps us get fired up to save it. So there's a bit of a climate 
angle to it. But I explore um, gender stuff. I explore, you know, meaning of life stuff, I suppose, all kinds of themes. And yeah, they tend to be philosophers. I'm just trying to think. I mean, like Margaret Atwood, I got on there because she's this wild climate activist and she does crazy stuff and she's creating these utopias, um, you know, this project that she's put heaps into because she's the queen of dystopian fiction. She went, right, I'm going to try to create utopian concepts that can be explored and fleshed out in in a public forum Sia the singer um, I got her on she was my first guest actually she was episode one because she has you know a very particular take on creativity and how she goes about things and being a very unique operator um, but oh look there's been Peter Singer there's been Rutger Bregman who wrote Humankind there's been Johan Hari Jill Bolte Taylor was one of my favorite episodes I'd say she's the woman with the most watched TED talk ever she's the one who had the stroke the neuroscientist who had a stroke and, and she basically witnessed her brain shutting down where she experienced pure consciousness without a left-hand side of the brain clustering things into to cognitive concepts so that's a really bizarre one and she still has to very consciously try to bring the two parts of her brain together to have a conversation so that's really fascinating but yeah there'll often be people that I've come across in my books or in my journeys around the world and I go back to them so a poet that I hiked with in the footsteps of Wordsworth in the Lake District once you know I got him on to explain how poetry works and can take us to those spots of belonging you know so yeah it sort of yeah swings between all different kinds of things and again follows where my whimsy I suppose. And you are also doing a Substack as well where people can check out your newsletter uh, on a weekly basis is it? Yeah yeah, well, if you're a subscriber, I post three times a week. So as I go to write my next book, the paid community, I bounce ideas off them. We do Zoom calls together. There's one girl who lives out of a van and she's followed me now for a year and a half on Substack. And she's like, I'm going to be in Sydney. And she's a young girl who's who quit her job in fashion to work in sustainable stuff off reading my Substack. And I said, well, listen, come and stay at my house when you're in Sydney. Oh. You know, I'm not going to be here, but you can come and stay in my apartment. So it's a really lovely community. Yeah, it is. It is. And some of them have been following me since my Cosmo days, you know. Um, (laughs) It's really strange. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Subscriber models are the way to go because the advertiser model, um, I've always had a problem with. I'm very, very funny about, like with I Quit Sugar, I did not take advertisers on. I did partnerships with three brands and it was like brands where I helped develop the product if that makes sense and I don't do any kind of advertising sponsorships you know like I'm not an influencer because I don't want to be caught in that capitalist cycle I do projects with like climate organizations and tourism organizations to get people hiking well I saw you were doing that with the um the climate council talking about I quit gas and yes. it gave me a bit of a wake-up call because we like live off grid we're in the middle of nowhere like I thought you know like we were living quite well and quite healthily and gas we have gas fire and solar panels and hydro um for our water and gas I yeah. saw on your page is equivalent for children living in a household of smokers is that correct that's right yeah so that's that that research has been emerging for a while and in fact the gas industry sat on that data for 30 years it's exactly the same as the sugar tobacco the whole thing right like 
it's the formula it's the playbook that they all go by they hide the information eventually it comes out and then they try to do a discreditation um, campaign which is what they did with me with sugar and um, so look I get it the gas industry doesn't want people to switch off gas because you know they make a lot of money from it but the top line thing that people need to know about is that gas in your home like so your gas cooker your gas heating and your gas hot water system as they start to age and break down or if you're renovating or you're building a new house don't replace it with gas replace it with electricity and then there's things you can do in the meantime because as to your point gas is a huge contributor to childhood asthma as well as respiratory diseases in all of us but it's responsible conservatively for 12 to 13 percent of all childhood asthma cases in Australia and remember not everybody has gas in their home so that is a significant contributor but of course gas is getting more expensive and gas prices drive up electricity prices, but the more we switch to electricity, the cleaner the grid will be getting, because it just is, that is the momentum of the planet right now, we have gotta get sustainable. And the Australian government is obviously committed to that, like has to, and they, you know, they're not doing it perfectly in my opinion, but they have to reach those Paris Agreement goals. And yeah, I just don't want Australians to be left behind with gas appliances as gas becomes so expensive and more and more redundant. And of course, it's bad for the planet. It's terrible for the planet. It's methane. Methane's 80 times more of a greenhouse gas than CO2. And people call it natural gas, which of course was a campaign invented by the gas industry. They planted that wording in the 1940s. I suppose it makes sense when you think about like the gas heaters that were causing all these health issues for people, right? And yeah. I suppose how's it, how's it actually too dissimilar to cooking with gas? And kids hang out, right, in the kitchen. It's a lot of households, that's where everything happens. So, But look, in the meantime, if you've got gas, I'm a renter. I have a gas stove. Like, There's only yeah. so much I can do. Ventilate as much as you can. Use your range hood when you're cooking. And the best option is go and spend between 50 and 100 bucks on a portable induction stove you can buy it from all of the department stores they are so good they will save you money and it means you can just turn your gas stove off and use this instead they boil water in a tenth of the time it's very responsive I've fallen in love with mine like just it's changed the whole way that I go about cooking food so I just have one it's it's about the size of a I don't know like a coffee table cookbook and you can actually put it on top of your gas stove and it just sits there or you can sit anywhere on your bench and uh, you use that instead until, I don't know, you can afford to buy a house or you're renovating or whatever, <laughs> the landlord's replacing your gas stove. It's a good interim option. Yeah. Before you leave, I know you're, you're probably always very busy working on something. Can you give us a little tease of what's to come in the world of Sarah Wilson? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if, this is, if it interests people, but I'm actually about to move to Paris. So I suppose that sounds very exotic. A full circle from where we spoke, started the conversation, right? Yeah. Um, Hopefully I won't end up on the streets. Well, you've got your electric cooker if you do. (laughs) That's it. That's it. I don't know if I'll take that with me, but um, I do travel very light. I think a a stove would probably be pushing that formula. In part to write my next book. Um, So, so many of the experts I want to speak to, also for my podcast, they're based in Europe, which is a train ride. Paris is really great for catching trains. Also, I find that I, I, get, I need to shake up the snow cone and um, I am finding Australia to be just a little bit complacent, a bit too comfortable. And I, each time I end up in Europe for various things, I feel very uh, enlivened by the passion they have for politics, for social issues, and there's a lot more intellectual engagement. I'm not the world's greatest bloody brainiac intellectual, 
Um, I didn't grow up in an intellectual family as such, but I, yeah, I crave learning and I crave the discomfort of the unknown. And yeah, we haven't got a culture of that here in Australia. Suits some people. It hasn't. It doesn't suit me right now. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. Well, it seems like it's worked for you. This sort of go get yourself scared shitless. Um, so put on you for moving to Paris at this time of your life. I think it's awesome. I think mm. you obviously follow what excites you and lights you up and you have created incredible things to this date so I'm really excited to see what's to come oh, thank you Polly thank you very much it's really kind of you <laughs> well thank you very much for joining me and um, all the best for your trip to Paris and all the best for your journey living off grid and uh, I don't know converting away from gas <laughs> thank you <laughs> She has fit a lot into her life so far and it seems like she is uh, not slowing down anytime soon. That was my chat with Sarah Wilson and uh, if you want to check her out and her podcast, I have put a link uh, in the show description so you can go have a listen there. She talks to some really incredibly switched on um, thought. Oh my God. As I say thought, I lose mine. Thinkers, thinkers, leading thinkers. Oh my God. It's been a day, guys. It's been a week. Um, she talks to some really incredible people. So go check out her podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to the PJ Podcast wherever you listen. I will catch you back next week for a new episode. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.